0: We were uh, straightforwardly challenged last week to embrace the true intention of Advent. Um, I know some of you probably started listening to Christmas carols, but that's, that was Steve's sermon, so... No, there was more to it than that. <laughs> I'm not here to brag on Christmas carols. Either. However, I really appreciated Steve's kind of uh, straightforward um, direction to us to... Embrace the season of Advent as a many lent meaning among other things that we're to be engaging in a time of focused attention on intercessory prayer. I'm welcoming Advent this year in that spirit, and I'm grateful for today's scriptures that give us a lot of examples of meaningful intercessory prayer. I don't think intercessory prayer... Some people are really gifted in that, I wouldn't say that I have a gift of intercessory prayer. Um, But I would say that just living, just living is enough to create in each of us a cry of some sort for God to act. The older we get, the stronger that cry, I think, emerges. All of us are probably praying as intercessors. (laughs) We may not know it. I'd like for us in the time of Advent to bring our intercessory ministry to the forefront. The author of Hebrews calls us a kingdom of priests, and that's essentially the ministry of our priesthood in Christ is to pray. And we have such a, a succinct direction from the Messiah to the 12 this morning stay awake, stay awake. Watch is another way of translating that word. Pay attention, as we would like to say it uh, commonly today. That's about as good an Advent mission statement as we're going to get. Pay attention. Stay awake. Watch. It's a spiritual discipline all of its own. I'd like to focus especially on Isaiah's prayer this morning, just to draw out a few important features to get us started. I want to draw your attention. Now, if you have your Bibles, um, I'm I'm going to be expanding beyond uh, just our reading this morning. Um, So you may want to open them to Isaiah chapters 63 and 64. But I'm going to anchor the sermon this morning on the verses from Isaiah 64, verses 4 and 5, to lift out some themes of intercession I'd like to, to address today. 64, 4 and 5. From of old... No one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him, who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. I'd like, I'd like us to take note of three things here in these two verses. <laughs> to listen and to see is something that Isaiah highlights: to listen and to see. to wait. Is a feature of this passage here. And to remember. And I'd like to address those three things today. To listen, to see, to wait, and to remember. But I'm going to flip the order around a little bit. I'd like to talk about memory, first of all. He says that we are to remember God in his ways. We remember him in his ways. We remember God especially... As he has revealed himself to his people by what he has done. There are a lot of different ways to remember God. We can be philosophical, we can be spiritual, meaning emphasizing spiritual qualities, we can be intellectual. Um, There are a lot of different ways to kind of approach God. In a biblical way, we do that especially by paying attention to what he's done in a time and a place. We remember God as he has revealed himself to his people by what he's done. And our memory of what he's done creates a yearning for him to act again the same way in our midst. So when we're remembering, it takes us beyond the scope of our own lives into the memory of our shared community. It's the history of our people that we're remembering. And we're automatically transported into a different place. If I think about remembering God's ways only philosophically or only within the context of my own life, I am automatically privatized. When I think of God's ways in his people, I am automatically interceding from a much different place, beyond myself, but not excluding myself. Mm. Our passage in Isaiah starts out with a cry to God. This is the intercessory cry in chapter 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. But before I get there, I want to back up because this cry actually comes in the middle of a larger section that starts in chapter 63, verse 7. And there, Isaiah says first, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. So before we get to the cry of Isaiah in chapter 64, we have the recounting of Isaiah in 63, verse 7. That's why I'm starting with memory. First, Isaiah remembers God's steadfast love. Now, that's chesed in Hebrew. Some of you are familiar with that word. It's become kind of popular. Chesed is a covenant term. It's the love that, it's the bonded love that God has for Israel. Expressed through his promise to them. That's what steadfast love means. So when Isaiah says, I'm remembering God's chesed, he's talking about something very specific to the Jewish people. The bond of love expressed in the covenant, in spite of their rebellion, as Isaiah goes on to say. I know you haven't read chapter 63, but as we work through it, you'll see. That the amazing feature of God's love is that it upholds itself even when Israel doesn't. What God does in this chesed, is to deliver them from their sin and their enemies. And in Israel, those are two sides of a coin. Israel is subject to her enemies because of their sin, very often. It it actually puts Israel's intercession in a hard place when I think about it, because when I pray for deliverance from, I wouldn't say enemies, but hard things, I feel really comfortable if I can justify myself by my goodness. God, deliver me because I deserve it. It's very hard for me to approach God and pray for deliverance when I've really messed up. But that's how God wants to disclose himself in his ways. God had made a promise to Abraham that his people would be a nation, that they would have a land, and that through them blessing would come to the world and to creation itself. By Isaiah's time, Israel had had a long history of the unfolding of this covenant promise. These are God's ways. By Isaiah's time, there had been a long history of God's faithful acts, as he says in 63 verse 7. We've seen God by this time as a redeemer, a savior, a lover, a king, many more things. As you read Israel's poetry and their psalms, their liturgy, the metaphors for God's ways among his people are multitude. All the while, from Abraham to Isaiah, God had been patiently disclosing evermore, little by little, his nature. It's just one thing that God exists, but how would God show people what he's like? That has to happen over time as God acts on behalf of his people over and over and over again, this is why Isaiah recounts the ways of God. Because it's over time that God disclosed evermore his nature, his character, his vision for Israel, his intention for them, and through them, for the nations of the world, for the renewal of the world itself. Israel develops this rich vocabulary of worship and praise and lament and hope that's been built up over the years of experiencing God and celebrating Him in feastal liturgies and psalms that convey all of these many facets and dimensions of this absolutely unique relationship that no people had ever enjoyed. In fact, here we'll read in verse Chapter 63, verse 8, Isaiah has, uh, through Isaiah, God calls Israel, my children. And so Isaiah confesses that God has become known by Israel as our father, our redeemer from old. Verse 16, so close was the bond between God and Israel that Isaiah claims in all their affliction, (laughs) he was afflicted. When Israel suffered, God suffered. So I wanna say this morning to us that Isaiah's act of remembering Israel's history is not only a metaphor for us. It's not just an analogy. And here's what I mean to say by that. I'm not only saying, look at the way that Isaiah remembers his people's history. By analogy, I want to remember my own history and my family and how God worked. I want to do that too. That's not what I want to convey this morning. What I want to convey is that Israel, is that Isaiah's history of Israel's people is our history. So I'm not intending to say that we should remember by analogy. I'm intending to say that we should remember the very same things that Isaiah remembers. Because that story is the one that matters. It's Isaiah's history, yes. It's also the psalmist's history. He cries out, Restore us, O God of hosts. It's Mary's history. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to his offspring forever, she says. It's Simeon's history. He has a lifetime of intercessory yearning shaped by this story. And so when he sees the baby, the Messiah, he says, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. It's Jesus' history. When he sees Jerusalem, he cries out for it. Oh, Jerusalem, how I would gather you as a mother gathers her hens, her chicks under her wings. It's Paul's history. He says, my heart's desire for Israel is that they might be saved. It's John's history who prays, come Lord Jesus. And it's our history because we're the wild branch grafted into all of this. And so I urge us as a congregation to know and remember our history, this history, as God's people, because that history has a beginning and a middle and an end. We're in this story. And if we're to be God's people as fully as we can be, it's because that story is what's animating us about all other stories. It includes our life. I'm not intending to say that the details of our lives are important. I'll try to address that. However, our lives are caught up into something, and that's what it's caught up into. That story of God's covenant relationship presses upon our hearts. That if God has acted in the past to deliver his people, then he will do so again in their hour of need. That's what we're interceding for. That's remembering. (coughs) Of course, our greatest act of memory is right in the Passover, which recounts this story. And remember that Paul says we break this bread to show forth his death until he comes. Do this in remembrance of me and this is what we're remembering. All right, to this memory, now I want to turn and I want to address qualities of listening and seeing, especially seeing, because it's the memory of our story that helps us to see things. It's our memory that helps to shape our vision. Jesus did not inform the disciples of things that they could have figured out on their own. Nobody can can figure out what Jesus was saying, hardly. Right? That would have been another sermon I could have preached. But Jesus is informing them of revelation. As Isaiah says in chapter 64, verse 3, God does awesome things we do not look for. That's for sure. That's a very interesting phrase to me. I don't remember that coming up anywhere else in Scripture. God does awesome things that we do not look for. He asks them, Jesus now, asks the disciples to pay attention to what God is doing as he brings his covenant promises to fruition. There are a lot of details that Jesus talks about we may not understand exactly, and that's not what I'm talking about this morning, but what it is is the yielding of this broken world to the kingdom of God. And it's the birth pains that happen along the way. And what Jesus is saying is pay attention to that. It's no different than the story that Isaiah is talking about. What does Isaiah see when he says, no eye hath seen, but now his eye is starting to take it and pay attention? Well, he sees the creation as the location of God's action. Mountains around him, what are they? They're living expressions of the movement of the creator and redeemer. God created those mountains. They're capable of quaking at his presence. Good thing I reviewed my text this morning because I had quacking in there at the end. Now I can't unsee that. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) They could do that too. (laughs) They are God's mountains. They are the mountains in God's own promised land. That's what Isaiah sees. The mountains around him are the promised land mountains. They're his mountains. Isaiah sees real adversaries that oppose Israel's vocation. Isaiah has known of Israel's enemies from the old stories, when Israel was under slavery in Egypt, and he knows them now as the kingdoms of Babylon and Assyria press down and are threatening Israel's survival. He also sees his fellow Israelites, who joyfully work righteousness. He sees Israel's collective sinful actions and the effect they have on the people and he sees their spiritual condition. He sees the destruction of God's holy cities, the beautiful cities. He sees Jerusalem's desolation, He sees the destruction of the temple. How do I know that he sees these things? Because he says that. He names them. They're the same things that Jesus sees. (coughs) Jesus, the perfect prophet, sees the same. He sees creation bearing witness, the powers of heaven shaking, the fig tree. I think about how Paul says the creation groans. Jesus sees Jerusalem's glory and shame, he sees the emptiness of the temple. He sees the spiritual condition of the Jewish people. He sees the beauty and the meaningfulness of the Passover festivals and the liturgies. And he sees even his own death. He sees the nations responding to his message. The non-Jewish people, like the Syrophoenician woman. He sees the impending desolation and judgment of Jerusalem. He sees the final fulfillment of his promise. This is the stuff of our intercession Note how similar it is between Isaiah's sight and Jesus. The ingredients are exactly the same. The line of prophetic intercession is identical. It's the earth, it's the Jewish people, it's the Gentiles, it's the promise, it's the sin, it's the reconciliation, it's the promise. They're no different in the story. This is the stuff of our intercession. We should be praying for the creation We should be praying for the Jewish people and the land. We should be praying for the Gentile nations, for the enemies of the gospel. We should be seeing the reality of our own sin and its reconciliation in the cross of Jesus. We should be aware of the future judgment and the final consummation of the promises. Jesus says, these are the things I want you to watch for. Pay attention for them. There's an impact to seeing. It's hard to see. The impact of remembering and the impact of looking and seeing and paying attention for Isaiah and for many others and for ourselves is that the tension builds. The tension builds as the contrast between God's promises and our conditions grows sharper and more irreconcilable the more we see, the harder it is to have faith. In Isaiah's experience, he was faced with a threat of Israel's very identity coming completely undone. He says in 63, 19, we have become like those who are not called by your name. That's essentially saying we've become nobody. Nobody or we become everybody, but we're not Israel. That's the existential crisis. There comes a point where we cannot hold the tension any longer between what we see and what we know and what we experience. The weight of contradiction is just too heavy. We're pressed to the point of despair or doubt or anger that God doesn't listen, God doesn't care, God doesn't act. In chapter 63, verse 15, Isaiah cries out, Your zeal and your might, the stirring of your inner parts and your compassion, are held back from me. I have no access to them. That's the beginning of intercession. That's the place that Isaiah's brought, that the prayer in 64.1 comes forth. He cries out, you who led Joseph like a flock, come to save us. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Why? Because the crisis is now at a level of no hope. That's what happens when we look and see. We have to name those things of which we're most afraid. And now we get to the point of waiting. Waiting. Chapter 64, verse 4. No one has imagined what God has in store for those who wait for him. This is the point of comprehending our helplessness. We do not act. We wait. We do not solve. We wait. We do not fix. We wait. Why? Because all our righteousness is no better than polluted garments. Our strength fades like a leaf. We are like lumps of clay. If we are such hopeless creatures, then what was the point of remembering and listening listening and looking to begin with? What is the point of paying attention if the result is that we come to such a conclusion that we're helpless at best and at worst participants in our own demise? What is the point of looking and seeing if we're brought to the point of despair? You hid your face from us, he says in verse 7. For God, the cry of deliverance, the cry for deliverance uttered by one who has no other recourse but the grace of God is a triumph. It means our attention is drawn ultimately and finally to the one true location of all that matters. That location is the face of God. That is what Isaiah says. And Asaph, the man who wrote Psalm 80, and Jesus says it. Paul says it, John, they all point to this as the source of life. In Psalm 80, Asaph repeats this psalm, this phrase three times. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we might be saved. God's face is the source of grace. We hear it every week. We recite the the wonderful benediction from Numbers, chapter 6, verse 25. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face to you and give you peace, peace and grace in the face of God. Paul says it so wonderfully and so beautifully in 2 Corinthians, chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul delighted in thinking about his ultimate destination, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then when I see him face to face, I shall know fully even as I am fully known. We wait to see God seeing us. That's salvation. We wait to see God seeing us to look into his face of grace and find there peace and glory and reconciliation to know that we are fully known. The pressure built up, the unanswerable questions, the groanings that cannot be uttered, fully known. God in his face and as we do see God seeing us we also then see God seeing the things we see we long to see him see the things that we see Isaiah says in verse 9 of 64 behold please look we are all your people we are seeing terrible things can you see them too Because we are overwhelmed and we need you to do something about it. And as God sees what we sees and he hears what we hear, we begin to see God actually moving into those hard places and showing us how he is accomplishing his will, not only apart from us, but among us and with us as well. The ministry of intercession begins when we are formed by the story of God in its concrete details. We say, our father Abraham, because even though we're not, most of us here, I assume, Jews by ethnicity, we're children of Abraham by faith. We take part in that story. Their story is our story. We are impoverished in our prayer if we do not know that story and its details and recognize it as our own. That trains us to see and to feel and to experience the tension and the contradiction and the groaning of brokenness. We hear the promise and no sooner do we hear it than we see its failure and we confront it. And it happens in that space of seeing, of remembering, that we see God seeing us, of seeing God see the things that we see. Advent will give us many examples of remembering the story, of listening and seeing, of waiting for God to act and then seeing him act. We will encounter these examples, especially in Mary and Anna and Simeon, for example. We'll see how their memory and their attention And their waiting drew them into the movement of God's kingdom in their time and in their place with all that they were and all that they had. These are great examples for us. God cares so much about the things that we care about. Our intercession doesn't take place to the exclusion of the things that we care about in our own life. It's the other way around. Our intercession draws the things that we care about into the story of God to see how God can there see the things we see and take action to bring his covenant promise to fruition. We have our time and our place. Let's follow their example this Advent and cry out with them and with the people of God before and after. Rend the heavens and come down. Let your face shine that we and many others may be saved. Amen. Wow.